Welcome back to another Tap Talks HR podcast. Today I'm talking to Kelly Cooper, founder and CEO for the Centre of Social Intelligence. And Kelly, we're talking today about your book, Lead the Change, the Competitive Advantage of Gender Diversity and Inclusion. Um, Well, Kelly, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me today, Anthony. No worries at all. So so let's get started. And why don't you just give us a brief overview about you and your background, really? Okay, Um, so I have been working in the diversity and inclusion space now for close to 10 years. And prior to that, uh, I was in the, I'm I'm gonna age myself, about 20 years in the environmental side of what I call sustainable development. And that means uh, I've been blessed with a great career in both private and government, uh, where I've been exposed to all kinds of things from the United Nations to the federal government on environmental issues such as climate change, oceans, a lot of the commons issues. So um, yeah, I guess that's a quick summary. That's fantastic. So um, what prompted you to write your book, Lead the Change? Well, you know, I get back to my speaking of the sustainable development, and I don't know how much you and your listeners know about that term, but it comes from 1987 with the Brundtland Commission. And it was a a phrase coined um, to suggest we need to pay attention to both the environment and social issues in a way that it's not compromised uh, by the economy. So sustainable development is really environment, social and economics. And how do we have all of those things working uh, collaboratively and not at the expense of the other so as to maximize our time on this planet, frankly? And so um, in the beginning of my career, I really looked at the environmental and the economic conversation. And what I speak about in the book at the beginning is to give a quick reference point for people so they really understand where I'm going with this uh, competitive advantage idea. It, but it's, it's um, I go to when we all used to just throw out garbage and not think anything of it. It was easy, you know, just garbage was garbage. We didn't, we didn't wonder where is it going or anything. Uh, But then there was this environmental movement that came in and the whole sustainable development phrase came in. And it was about how do we actually not compromise the environment for the economy and how do we do that at all? So when it came to garbage, people would start to think, um, all right, how do I make money off of garbage? And so the whole reduce, reuse, recycle business came into play. And that was like an an eye-opening thing for people to say, okay, I can understand how to make some value out of the economy in a different way, but it's actually bettering society, bettering the environment. So I wanted to look at the social side of that issue and get that message across. And I, for the longest time, I was like, how do you do that? How do you, how do you get that return on your social investment? And for the projects I was involved in here in Canada, um, we were often doing pipeline projects And it was about how do we engage stakeholders in a different way? And and the social arm seemed to always be, let's pay for uh, indigenous representatives, for example, to come and participate in an environmental assessment process regarding a pipeline. But again, you're not quite getting that return on your investment, right? Same thing, people would think, oh, I'm gonna give some money to a soccer team and, and that's me being social and that's that, I'll check that box doesn't cut it for me. So it was like, okay, no, there's got to be more to this. So then I realized it was taking that same lens that we had on the environment and applying it to the social in the, in the sense that how do we optimize our people internally? How do we get greater performance and innovation out of them such that um, we have a return on that investment? 
And that is what ended up happening with the large management consulting firms that have come out with all this data on diversity and inclusion, like the Deloitte's, the KPMG's and the McKinsey's. And they, they talk of all the, the, the um, I have some statistics to share with you on that front actually, that organizations with an inclusive culture are twice as likely to meet or exceed their financial targets. They're three times as likely to be high performing, six times to more likely to be innovative and agile, and eight times more likely to achieve better business outcomes. So those are numbers people are like, what, where'd you get those numbers? I don't understand. But they're real numbers and, and they come from investing in your people and then attracting the best and brightest to your organization. And by doing so, getting more innovation and so forth spinning. So, I mean, that, that's really interesting because from my point of view, um, when I think about diversity and inclusion, um, quite often people see uh, the monetizing and that aspect of it. Oh, 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 we shouldn't do that. We should have this kind of holistic view that we should have the betterment of people right at the core of everything we do. But actually, I mean, it's real world. The economy just drives everything, doesn't it? So it's interesting that you, you use the analogy of what happened before with the environment to actually demonstrate that actually when you, you, you get consumers kind of involved in the environment, that the economy then gets kind of, I'm talking about the economy like it's a person, but the economy then gets in, involved in that and actually wants to change and businesses want to change. And it's, I find that really intriguing then that actually it helps with the business argument of actually why should we, we should be doing things differently with our people in organizations. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, so that, that, that's fascinating as a, as an approach um, to, to, to why you wanted to write this book. So, so talk to me about the book. What's, what's the kind of the purpose sure. of the, the value proposition? Yeah. So the book's really about the value proposition of diversity and inclusion, and then it provides a blueprint for how to take action. So in the value proposition, which really takes up a good third of the book, um, it really breaks it down in, in layman terms. So it's not complicated, very easy to follow. Um, the, incent the economic incentives, which we've just gone over some of those, about the percentage of um, improvements in the workforce, but also something that people don't often talk about, which is the disincentives. So um, what is that? Well, the cost of inaction, essentially. And every night I watch two to three news items that tell us about some crazy sexual misconduct that's taken place in the workplace. And I have a couple of notable examples for you from my context here in Canada. Last year, $900 million sexual misconduct lawsuit aimed at the Canadian Armed Forces was paid out by the federal government on a class action lawsuit. That's a crazy amount of money that if we had preventative thinking, we wouldn't be, you know, in that mess. Uh, in 2016, Google paid a former search executive $35 million in an exit package when he was reportedly forced to resign after a sexual allegation. In 2017, you guys probably know about that movie too, um, but it was Century Fox News, paid out $50 million for sexual harassment lawsuit. And if you can stand it, they paid the males who were the accused $64 million just to go away. So when, you know, I'm talking about it from a gender lens, obviously there's a diversity and inclusion angle to this as well, but these are the disincentives that people don't understand the cost, the economic cost for inaction. And there's something else that people also don't pay attention to, um, which is it's important to remember that unlike wrongful dismissal lawsuits where courts award compensation for lost wages that are proportionate 
to an employee's age, tenure, or in position. Human rights tribunals pay little regard to precedents and these traditional factors. Instead, its tribunals have the power to award employees compensation for all lost wages. That would have not occurred but for the discrimination. People don't realize that. In sexual harassment cases, these damages could be huge. In one case I can share with you, um, a tribunal awarded a hairstylist one year salary after she was sexually harassed and then fired. She had only six months tenure. If she were not sexually harassed, but still fired, her claim would have only been worth a few weeks pay. So the, the ability and the willingness of human rights judges to award lost wages for an employee's entire period of unemployment significantly increases the risk for employers when proceeding to hearings in these cases. So people just don't, I think they need to understand the whole problem and the whole cost. Um, they're leaving money on the table. They may think, oh, I don't have like diversity and inclusion or even just gender, let's start with women issues, are not a priority for me. They actually are a priority because you're leaving money on the table. And if you're not paying attention to this, I'm saying you're just not a good business person. That's really interesting, isn't it, about the, the cost that there is to it. So, so where did you go with this in your book? How do you then translate that into a call for action? What, what comes next? Well, the next thing I, t I really uh, try to ingrain with men is, because uh, it's, it's mar obviously largely men audience, is, is the benefits associated to diversity and inclusion for them. So we often talk about, oh, well, if we have more women in these positions, gosh, we're going to have to change our policies and it's going to be so much like working from home and work-life balance and they kind of complain about it. But what they don't realize is it actually is to their benefit too. And that currently there's something we have called the, the, the death gap, age gap, I don't, you know, men dying before women. Well, why do you think that is? I would argue that there's some issues surrounding the stress and pressure men have, okay? and the responsibilities they feel as being the breadwinner that are coming into play here. I think also the lack of social connection to family, to friends, to community. There's a lot of uh, evidence to suggest men die at a higher rate of suicide than women. Why? Well, we need this social connection piece. And so um, for men to understand that they too benefit from these policies of being able to go to see their son or daughter's game in the afternoon if that's what's the priority in that, in his life, um, he's able to do that without being seen as not committed to his career. So there's a safe space created for both men and women to live their whole selves, to be their own whole authentic selves. And I would say um, that is one of the interesting things that sort of pennies drop with people or not pennies anymore, but you know, light bulbs go off, whatever you want to say, where they finally go, yeah, okay, yeah, that would actually be really good. And, and, that, and that's really interesting for, from my point of view, because I, I think we often look at it for, for the advantage of, of the minority kind of thing. And actually, I think uh, we miss a trick of actually with you have to almost got to convince the majority to almost like start the movement kind of thing, because they hold the power. Um, right. uh, so, so when you've kind of encountered uh, businesses like this, what's, what's the one bit that's changed the mindset? Is it this persuasion or is it a, you start doing stuff and things win? What, what is it that, that works? Well, um, I haven't shared what I'm working on primarily these days, but I, I've been doing my background initially was environmental science. Uh, so I'm very familiar with the natural resource sectors. 
Um, I went on to have a master's degree in, in international environment development and policy in, in the UK, actually, at Brighton. A um, little plug for Brighton. And, uh, <laughs> um, but so with that backdrop, I, when I went into the social issues or the diversity and in- inclusion conversation, I really was working in those sectors. Well, those sectors aren't easy in terms of this conversation. And um, I've been spearheading in uh, partnership with an organization here in Canada, that forest organization, um, a three-year sector-wide initiative on shifting the workplace culture toward gender diversity and inclusion. And I mean, we're talking pretty low bar here on where things were, okay? Um, There's lots of things in the news that have been uh, not painting a very favorable light on the forest sector with, you know, there's people who go up and do tree planting and they're off at camps and all kinds of crazy behavior takes place. So there's a lot of um, uh, room for improvement, let's say, uh, on this topic. And so, I, and I also figure like, if I can make a change here, I can make it anywhere. So anyway, this project's been going on for three years and um, we're just wrapping up the first phase of it. If anyone wants to go and see about it, it's pretty cool stuff. You can go to www.freetogrowinforestry.ca. But it's all about um, shifting that mindset with the C-suite. And throughout that process of that project that I've been leading, my company's the diversity and inclusion arm to it uh, in partnership, like I say, with a forest facing organization. And I basically pulled together a committee of public, private, not-for-profit, indigenous and academia representatives across the forest sector and across Canada to um, be an advisory group to creating a national action plan and implementing it. So we've been doing some really cool stuff. I won't get into all of it because I could take all day. Um, But all to say that during that process, um, I could see there was a gap here on on accessing the C-suite with this conversation. And that's what spurred on the book. So the book basically became this window to um, access the C-suite and executives in the forest sector and others, obviously. I'm going way beyond them now. It's not just forestry. But it has been um, an amazing uh, shift happening here in Canada in this sector with the C-suite. And I am, I'm just so excited about it because I get executives contacting me now all the time saying, Kelly, we are finally seeing a change. What you're doing is making a difference. Um, people on LinkedIn are sending me messages about my book and saying how, how it's making a difference in their organizations. They're buying 10 up to 40 copies just to pass it around because it speaks very clearly to leaders and explains very clearly why this is important. As we talked about, there's money left on the table if you're not doing this. And what's super exciting is that now I'm seeing executives, male executives in Canada, competing for wanting to do more, which is excellent. It's like it's it's like creating the conditions for success, right? And I'm super happy about it because um, it's happening. You know, I I've always said it takes maybe three to five years to make change in an organization of this nature. And we're doing it across an entire sector. And we're at, we're not even at year three being finished. We have plans now to go on to uh, phase two and there's some exciting things on the ground we're gonna do in the regions and doing more training. Um, my company is building some online and in-person training modules related to how to overcome resistance, um, inclusive leadership, and then also how to be an ally in the workplace. And all those components combined are like the meat and potatoes of how to get through this issue. But it's all about how men are part of the solution, not part of the problem, right? And that, that's the way I, I operate with this conversation. Um, and I think that's one of the changing uh, mindsets that's allowed for people to 
to absorb it, buy into it, take that baton and run. And, and, and I love that. And, and you talked about those three areas that you're now working on. Uh, just going back to the bit, you said your, your book fills the gap to the access of the C-suite. What mm-hmm. do you think was it either in the book or how you approach this that actually bridged that gap? How did you, do you, do you get the C-suite to listen? Well, I think part of it was how we uh, spoke earlier about the sustainable development, giving that very clear example about how the environment was at one point, you know, can see, considered there for just our use, you know, um, and but recognizing now how we can make a return on that investment, like actually make it work, applying that into the social context. That was like a big eye opener, I think, for people. So taking what we and people never know what's going on at the United Nations. They're like, ah, the United Nations, just a bunch of it's a big talk shop, right? But having had the experience of being at, representing Canada at UN meetings for the environment, and I now can draw it down to the boardroom and make those connections, and I do share that in the book, it helps people to kind of get it, like get the whole picture, right? And then when you start to map out the, fun, the financial piece of the incentives to do so and the disincentives to do so, the benefits to men, the benefits to their lives, um, that was, that's a big chunk of it. And then I think it's about how do you get across to them uh, how you can do this confidently. No leader wants to fail. And let's face it, the diversity and inclusion conversation is very murky waters, right? There's a lot of people now popping up doing DNI work. They don't have the depth necessarily of the experience that is required to really hold the hands uh, comp- with confidence to get these guys to embrace it. So they need to have that. I felt they needed to have um, something where they could go, you know what, I can do this. I can see the map. This is a, and that's what the book provides. It's a real blueprint for um, going from that aha moment of, okay, I get why we need to do it now. Now just tell me how, and that's what the book does. It'll just take you through that whole thinking process. And obviously you want all our listeners to buy your book um, um, and every single one of them will straight after this, um, <laughs> after this podcast. But, but actually, if, if you wanted to give a summary and maybe some top tips about once a C-suite to almost kind of remove the blinkers and seeing the, 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 the light kind of thing and say, okay, let's do something in the organization around diversity and inclusion. And you talk about, you talk about allies and you talk about getting men on board. What's, what's those kind of things that you do? What are those kind of activities that you might see in one of those projects? Okay, well, let me just back up for one second to say, um, you don't make a lot of money selling books. <laughs> so, <laughs> what I love about the book, you. <laughs> I know, I appreciate that. But Amazon really owns, gets a lot more money than I do. It's really bad. Um, my, my whole quest is to get that message out and to make that difference in the world. And, I, and, and I'm seeing it here. And that's what makes me so excited to share the message because I think everyone, in fact, we're doing work internationally. Um, the project I'm spearheading in Canada on the forest sector is actually being recognized as a case study internationally for how to go about things. So that's super cool. Um, but anyway, back to your question. Um, what what you're saying what uh, what should people do first yeah so so what's what's some of the activities you'd see inside of an organization once the c-suite have kind of come on board yeah well the first thing is um yeah so you figure out your business case internal to your organization right and if you don't have any numbers you gotta start tracking numbers most places do have numbers to work with um you start identifying where those gaps are if it's uh and and like i say when we worked on this project i'm working on now with the forest sector 
it was really a focus on gender at first, but it's gone way beyond that now to having a greater focus on inclusion. And what is inclusion? Well, it's things like all the other underrepresented groups, new immigrants, it's uh, people with disabilities, both seen and unseen. It's um, uh, LGBTQS plus now it's called uh, communities. And how do we work with them without um, ostracizing them? So it's about um, figuring out your, your numbers, figuring out where you need to focus and then, and your business case and how you want to approach it, because that's a whole, that's, that's crystallizing your plan, right? And then going about it. So um, I always recommend having a task force internal to an organization at various levels that are working with an expert or some catalyst, because sometimes you can't always do it internally. There's too much history with players there, but you get a catalyst in there and you get a, uh, somebody who has direct access to the president because the visibility of the president is critical to have um, regular outputs to the, the, the company or whomever is uh, working with them to um, make sure that they're, they're beating the drum on whatever the task force is determined is the plan and they start rolling it out. And there are various things. It's things about how you're repositioning the organization for its brand. It's things about um, doing obviously some upskilling and training. And, and I, I really promote the training in the areas I'm talking about. How do you overcome resistance, right? How do you become an inclusive culture? And then, uh, you know, how do you become a better ally? What does it even mean to have privilege? Like with the whole allies thing is about recognizing privilege. And uh, you and I spoke about this just a little bit before the call started here, but just, um, you know, we have privilege. It's, it's, it's for the gender perspective. It's, and, and what policies can be produced. It's things like, you know, as a woman colleague going to a conference late at night, um, I need to have a taxi chit to get home. I don't need to take, I can't, it's not safe for me to take public transit. It's not the same privilege that a, a white male could take, right? And they could take the public transit and feel, feel just fine. But you need to have sort of an understanding that, hey, with my female colleague, I think it's smart that I have these policies in place where they're actually safe. So they can do their job optimally and attend that conference. And they don't have to worry about the risks of getting home later. That's a simple one. What other privilege is like, um, if you're a black, black male, getting profiled for driving down the street and a, and a cop pulls you over. Do you have that issue? Do you have that concern when a cop pulls you over? You're probably thinking, hey, it's just my taillight. But for a black man, it's a different thing altogether. Um, do you have someone saying to you, Hey, where are you from now? You have an accent. So coming here, you would definitely have people asking you that, <laughs> but let's pretend you are of a different physical look. Well, that, that, that's offensive to people. It's like, Hey, I'm from the UK or Hey, I'm from Canada. Or both of our countries have high multiculturalism and, and frankly, Canada prides itself on that. So where's with, what's with the question? Right. So it's like, you know, you got to put that privilege beside, aside and, and just be sensitive to how it's coming across to the receiver. I yeah, I've gone off topic a bit there. Sorry no, no, it's fantastic because I think it, it's, it's really important because I think these are the, the kind of interesting snippets for, from my point of view, especially and maybe some of the listeners that actually we hear about these these huge transformational programs and everything uh, but it's actually how do you do it what do you do and I think you've just given some great examples of actually opportunities there and you, you spoke about um allies um and is is there anything you've seen around allies which are the pin 
pinch points, which are those moments where you just see actually the aha moment happen, that, that, that where people come on board and then back the cause. I think the allies conversation is uh, pretty new. Um, I think, frankly, people are people who have figured out the why and the how of this conversation. Um, the allies ship piece is is part of the how, obviously, but it's it's kind of the the most recent frontier of it. It's really being tangible with this conversation, right? It's really getting down and dirty with what do I have to do? And so there's a lot of reflection that's required to um, truly move through that. A lot of deliberate intentions about saying, okay, I'm actually going to change how I'm operating uh, and be very conscious of certain acts. Um, so for example, like there's a lot of guys and, and it's, everyone has a past. Okay. Everyone's got, things we're not entirely proud of, <laughs> but um, when it comes to being an ally, it's like, okay, um, a lot of guys will say, well, now that I have a daughter, I really understand, you know? So sometimes light bulbs go on at different times and they're like, oh my God, if I could just put that old me aside and just put it in a box and nobody finds it, I'd be aces here on the allyship. So there's a little bit of, um, I don't know, I don't want to say, not, not shame, I don't want to say shame, maybe something around shame, but where you're, you're like, I'm, I bet I used to do X, you know, something to do with women Googling. I could have maybe done some racial slurs. I could, you know, whatever it was, not very proud of it. It's behind me now. So there's sort of a, a process of becoming an ally, I think. Um, and for all women, this is for women too. This isn't just for men, but how we, how we used to conduct. So a real reflection, honest reflection onto how we were. And sort of saying, okay, that was the old me. Now I'm going to commit to a new me. And that new me is almost like taking a pledge. And I would suggest that in an organization, you know, an allyship uh, process that they can go through. And my, we're building training on this right now, actually. So it's about um, making that pledge about how you're going to change and how, well, not change, how you're going to be. So I pledge to look out for my female and under other underrepresented colleagues in the workplace from now on, what does that look like? I'm going to make sure that when we have a meeting that um, there is a sensitivity to different cultures. Some cultures find it rude to interrupt other people when they're talking. That is not the case in North America. I can assure you it is the opposite. People are so like rock'em sock'em with their words, elbows, whatever, to get in there and say their bit. But other cultures were not raised that way. It's very rude for them to interrupt. And so they might be perceived as somebody who's not interested, not capable, right? When that could not be farther from the truth. So what's important is that people who are in the chair position or others, doesn't have to just be the chair, make the point to say, hey, I haven't heard from so-and-so. Um, do you have something you'd like to share? Right. And then that's maybe when they, then that gives them the platform to speak where they are comfortable doing so. Right. So it's these little cues of awareness, but anyway, so you go back to the commitment and then you start doing actual um, things like I'm talking about right through until you become um, an advocate. Like there's campaigns you can do um, men of quality. I've seen that with the Toronto Maple Leafs. If you look up uh, white ribbon, one of the organizations that I'm working with right now, um, they helped develop this campaign with Toronto Maple Leafs to have 
a different way of um, being a guy who sort of in a healthy masculinity way um, is um, speaking up, advocating for women and seeing this whole conversation in a different light. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's um, too often, I think, diversity, inclusion, opportunities for learning are, are kind of fixed underneath compliance and, and it's a sheep dip. Everyone has to go through it. And there's almost a bit of resentment. I've got to waste an hour doing some yes, no online training to get a score. Whereas actually, as what you're saying, it's, it's almost like it so enriches you as a person. Mm -hmm. doing that development almost to become an ally and an advocate that actually you get to reflect on yourself and actually mm -hmm. it's almost like as much as we want to kind of avoid shame uh, as, as a kind of a feeling as you go through it but actually that that feeling of of getting to the end uh, of a program going you know what I wish I'd gone through this 20 years ago exactly. it's probably the best feedback you can get out of that and having these people that then almost infect others because exactly of their positive right. message yeah so, and you're and, and you when you have the mindset of not only am I a better person out of this but I'm influencing the next generation to basically have the bar raised higher on code of conduct. And what is wrong with them, Apples? Nothing. That is uh, a very, very good place to get to because uh, amazingly, we've already kind of got to the end of the podcast time. Um, and I did warn you before we started, it goes like, like no time at all when you get talking. <laughs> um, but I really... Um, just want to ask you one question. I usually ask my people on my podcast this. If there was one thing from your book or from your experiences that you'd want someone to just think about, take away, reflect on after this podcast today, what would that be? Well, I think we often look in this conversation, uh, especially in the gender lens, I'll just say it right now, but uh, as a women's issue. And it's quite clearly not. It's an everybody's issue or it's an underrepresented person's issue, let's put it that way. I think the thing I'd like to leave with your listeners is that um, we're all about trying to create safe spaces for underrepresented groups, but I think what we need to think about is creating safe spaces for men to speak up because men don't call each other out on their stuff, on their bad jokes or their sexist jokes or their racial slurs or what have you. There's a certain uh, uncomfortableness with doing that. There's a feeling of, oh, I might get ostracized from my male peer group. But we need to have a sober thought about that complicit behavior toward affecting underrepresented groups. I think that's fantastic. And I have to say, that's one of the root causes of why I'm so interested in inclusion as something, because I am sitting in that majority. Uh, I do see that behavior go on and I do try and call it out. But I do see the social pressures that, that, that men sit under with that. I think that's uh, that's a great thing. And you see, you got me reflecting already. I haven't even finished the podcast yet. Um, Kelly, it's been absolutely amazing um, having you on the podcast. And I highly recommend everyone out there go and buy a copy of Lead the Change, the competitive advantage of gender diversity and inclusion right now. So thanks very much for being on the podcast, Kelly. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. No worries. And thanks, everyone. That's it for today. But do join us again soon for another Tap Talks HR podcast. You can always find out more about this subject and other similar subjects at tapsolutions.com. But thanks for listening. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.